Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. My guest today is my colleague in Washington, D.C., Mike Fulton. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? Hey, Anthony. Doing great. Well, thanks for joining us. I can't think of a better time to talk to Mike Fulton because this is being recorded the Monday after the election and right after all the news and all the controversy and all the hubbub with post-election. So we'll get into that a little bit. Mike uh, is in, in, as I mentioned, in Washington, D.C. and keeps his pulse on what's happening in the nation's capital. So looking forward to this conversation. So Mike, tell us, what is it like to be in Washington, D.C. right now? What are you hearing? What's the word on the street? What does it feel like from your perspective? Well, every presidential election, there's a good deal of change that occurs, um, and and there will be quite a bit of change, and I don't think we know how much yet, because there's still two Senate seats in Georgia that are still up for a runoff election on January 5. So the balance of power in government will be undecided for a little bit. Um, we do know that Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris are the president and vice president, and they are starting rapidly with their transition, announcing the coronavirus task force members this morning. And while we have a reluctant sitting incumbent president, um, how difficult will he make it on the rest of the world in this transition? How will Republican lawmakers react to that transition? Um, it, it's, it's really, that's what keeps you guessing. And I think it's what makes me more valuable being in Washington, D.C. to keep my finger on this pulse for a number of our clients who are trying to get things done, either legislation, regulations, funding, relationship development, and it it's changes by the minute here. Yeah, well, uh, just it, a few a, moments ago, the Secretary of Defense was fired on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I happen, I happen to see that. You know, it's it's funny because I'm glad you mentioned that because for a lot of us, it's almost you know like entertainment, but it does have a real effect on people and their and their wallets and their livelihood and all that. So we appreciate you keeping your ear to the ground there in D.C. for our clients and and the work you do. And, and this has also been a big week for you for another reason. You just recently received an award. Am I correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I was very honored uh, that my alma mater, West Virginia University, and their College of Media uh, gave me an award, um, the Commitment to Service Award. Uh, it's named after one of the most popular professors uh, who's now deceased. Um, at the at the College of Media where I attended, and um, it's all about um, helping the College of Media, its faculty, its students, and um, like you and others at Asher, we provide opportunities for young people. We try to help mentor them and and offer them opportunities, job assistance. Um, how does the real world work? Uh, outside the textbooks, and uh, I enjoyed doing that, and um, I just was very uh, grateful and humbled to, to receive that award. Um, I was in pretty good company, too. Uh, the, another person who won an award is a Pulitzer Prize winner at the Louisville Courier-Journal, 
And another one of the winners of, uh, that was honored, there were four people in total, was an intern of mine okay. um, that, that I had uh, helped mentor. So I thought that was very fitting. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, congratulations. That's, that's great Thank to hear and, and well-deserved. Well, well, Mike, as you know, on this podcast, and I'll mention this is the first time we're doing it remotely. So if, if our listeners can forgive any glitches along the way, because this is, you've been on a ton of podcasts, but it's new for both of us because it's the first time we've done it remote for the Asher Marketing Podcast. So I appreciate you being our first remote guest. But as you know, on this podcast, we talk about three things. One is career path, in part because of what you mentioned. We're really passionate about helping people get started in marketing and learn about the career. So, you know, and you're obviously coming at it from a little bit of a different angle, so we'll be interested to hear that. Then we'll talk about the organization you work for, of course, in this case, Asher Agency. Uh, and, and for that part of the conversation, really interested in hearing about the unique work that you do, because it's a little bit different than what a lot of marketers do. And then the last thing we talk about is uh, uh, projects you're working on, you know, what's on your plate right now, what's keeping you up at night, what's exciting, what's interesting, all those things. So that's the format, and we will, as usual, divert from that path occasionally, but we'll start with the first of those questions. So, Mike, you and I met each other a number of years ago when Asher acquired the office that's now in Charleston, West Virginia. You kind of came along with that office, but I know some of your career path before that, and obviously I know a little bit about what's happened since then, but Take us from the beginning, whatever that is to you. How did you get started on the path you're on now, and what does that path look like? Thanks, Anthony. Um, I, I always enjoyed writing and politics uh, as, as a young person, and, and it's a very good thing because the career path that I've taken. Um, I was editor of my college newspaper, had interned two summers and holidays at my local hometown newspaper. Um, I'm a naturally curious person. I prepared myself for a career in journalism. So I had actually accepted a job back at my hometown newspaper as a full-time reporter after graduation. But three things happened along the way in a matter of months that, that really changed my world. Um, one was a visit to the nation's capital. Um, and I must admit, while I was always enamored by Washington. I'd never been there. Um, it was about, from college, it was about three and a half hour drive. And so I went over and spent time as a tourist, but I sat in the gallery of the House of Representatives. I went to the senator's offices, the, my congressman's office. Uh, we went to the archives, the Air and Space Museum, the memorials, the art galleries. It was just blew me away you know it was uh so different from the the world in west virginia where i had grown up um but then i got um uh, we had a guy from our from the hometown congressman's office happened to come to west virginia university to speak at the college of media and i went to hear him speak and then later he interviewed several seniors, graduating seniors, to see if there was anybody that he wanted to hire to bring on to the congressional staff. And so I was highly encouraged by a professor of mine to interview, and I did. And two days later, uh, was offered a job in Washington. So I redirected my post-graduation plans 
to come to Washington and work in the Cannon House office building for the congressman from my hometown area. So, Mike, if you don't mind me interjecting for a second, I won't ask you to give away your age, but can you tell us about, like, maybe what presidential administration that was so we have a sense of the time here? Yes. Jimmy Carter was president then. Okay. All right. The country was going through an energy, you know, energy shortage. There were gasoline lines. Um, You know, I can remember trying to get back home one time, and I had trouble finding a gas station to refill tank yeah. uh, along the way. I was about an hour away, which would have been very difficult. There were no cell phones back then. Yeah, this is post Watergate. So the, the environment is actually, you know, not, not all that friendly to, you know, the, the political world at that point. That's right. That's right. So it was a very difficult time for the nation and our economy. And um, uh, it was really interesting. Um, so I worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years for the uh, member of Congress that hired me, and then his son ran for Congress. So I moved back to Fairmont, West Virginia, um, and um, lived and worked on the campaign of his son, Alan B. Mollahan, uh from West Virginia, and he was elected in 1982. He was sworn in in January of 83, so I walked in to a freshman office when I had worked for a senior member of Congress. Uh, it changes quite a bit, uh, but it was very exciting. And working for a father and a son in Congress was like night and day. Uh, they were very different about how they got things done. And then I had a pretty big role in uh deciding what his priorities would be and which committees he might serve on and which projects we would undertake to try to get done. Um, So it was really quite exciting. We had um, uh, really, while the West Virginia congressional delegation was small, they were mighty. Uh, Robert C. Byrd at the time was majority leader of the United States Senate chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Jennings Randolph chaired the Environment and Public Works Committee. You had several other members of Congress that were on appropriations or very important committees. Um, So getting things done was very doable. If you thought it up, you could actually do it because you had the muscle uh, and the help from the rest of the delegation. So in 1988, I was lured off Capitol Hill uh, by a former chief of staff uh, to another member of Congress in the West Virginia delegation. And I can remember, you know, um, getting a call from a chief of staff from uh, an an office, and he said, hey, uh, so-and-so is asking around about you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, he's going to hire you to work at his new agency downtown. And I thought, I said, I'm really not looking for a job right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he he woke me up when he said, if you don't want it, then please tell him I do. (laughs) And the member of Congress that he worked with was a lot more senior than me. And I felt very... um, I felt like I should at least meet with this individual and talk to him. So I uh, was was hired by Dan McGinn, 
to work um, in the Washington office of a West Virginia-based firm. Uh, it was called Ryan McGinn. And we had three people that worked there at the time I started. So it was all hands on deck, very much like a congressional office in the House of Representatives. You answer the phones, you meet with constituents, you carry out things. Same way we did things in that P small PR office. Uh, we had uh, predominantly West Virginia clients to start out with, but as we grew and had success, um, we eventually grew to $10 million in revenue and 28 people. Wow. And we were, we, we were at, at, at a time um, when uh, agencies were growing rapidly, uh, PR and advertising marketing agencies were growing rapidly in Washington, and it was a huge emphasis on acquisitions. So the interpublic group of companies uh, publicly traded in New York on the New York Stock Exchange uh, acquired our firm and we landed under uh, Golan Harris, now known as Golan. Uh, Chicago headquartered, uh, wonderful agency, and um, we took over the Washington office for them, our, our staff, and led it um, for a number of years. I worked there 20 more years. Um, at Golan Harris, um, and then I left in 2010 to kind of find my roots again. Um, a core uh, deliverable that I provided for clients was eliminated by the Rules Committee in the House and Senate. They, they stopped doing congressionally directed projects or earmarks. And so because of my background on the Appropriations Committee, I knew how to do that pretty well. So for 20 years, I had done a lot around grants and appropriations, but that business wasn't as sustainable um, any longer because you really couldn't get members of Congress to put projects in the bills any longer. You had to just lean on competitive grants. So um, I had to remake my career in 2010, and I called a friend that I'd known for a long time in Charleston, West Virginia, and I said, how would you like to open a Washington, D.C. office? He said, well, I think I'd like that if you're going to head it up. <laughs> so I uh, opened a Washington office for the agency that was acquired by Asher Agency uh, about seven years ago. Okay. So for about the last uh, 10 years, I've been working, you know, remotely in Washington. But when we were acquired by Asher, a lot of other skill sets came about. Um, the company is, has robust digital and website capabilities. Uh, it's not just pitching news releases and doing events and, and, and also representing clients, you know, on and advocacy. It, there's a lot of other dimensions to the Asher agency that I enjoyed, and I've had fun learning over the last seven years. Well, and, and we've had fun learning from you because you bring a completely different skill set and dimension to the work we do. So, and that's where I'd like to go next. Um, you know, most of the listeners know something about Asher, and, and they may know it from different perspectives. But what I'd like to hear about is specifically kind of the lane that you focus on at Asher. 
and how that complements the work that the other folks at Asher do. What's the service, the services you provide? How do you do that work? How does it integrate with the other stuff that Asher does? And, and what's this, what's this Asher agency thing all about from your perspective? Well, my, my work generally falls into the following buckets, um, grants and appropriations or fundraising. Um, so I understand that space. And let's be honest, what client do we have that doesn't want to secure more customers, win uh, a federal grant, uh, pursue an agency perhaps for a, a loan guarantee or a loan or go after a government contract um, or even sell sponsorships for something they're doing to help underwrite the costs of it. So fundraising has been a big area. Um, I understand the policy and regulatory arena. So I'm always um, on the lookout for our clients for opportunities and also um, those ac actions that can be taken that can trip one up. Um, you know, and people say, well, you know, government, I don't need to know about that. Yes, you do. <laughs> Literally everything in our lives is governed by government regulation of some kind. It's been funded by the government. It was pilot tested by the government and then taken over by the private sector. And at any point, the government can get involved from television to toothpaste to uh, the food we eat, the cars we drive, every service that we uh, partake in. Um, I also am a big um, believer in strategic partnerships and alliances. So I work a lot with congressional caucuses and um, put clients and like-minded clients and organizations in partnership with each other to amplify what they're doing and to gain uh, media attention to get something done in a bigger way than they might be able to do it on their own. And then I um, have been always involved in the media and working with the media, being a resource to the media. Um, so pitching uh, earned media stories, um, uh, you know, to the media at the local, state, or national level. Um, I'm very active in that space for Asher and for our clients, drafting op-ed pieces that have a point of view. Uh, columns that motivate people to take action. Um, right now, podcasts are hot, and a lot of our clients are being featured as guests on podcasts like this. Uh, radio talk shows are very popular, uh, given COVID-19, and people have time now to listen to radio shows and podcasts and read more books and read the paper better. Uh, they're watching more television. So a lot of things are in the favor of our clients that have content to share. And so, you know, the government can also build validation and support for our clients. And uh, I've seen time after time how, um, you know, a member of Congress, a governor, a state legislator, a mayor, uh, getting involved in an event, uh, tweeting something out or appearing at their event you know, very, very positive. And so I have reach into that community. 
So that that's really the air my area of focus. So so Mike, let's focus on the, the PR piece for a second because you know you mentioned you know you're a journalism student. You've you've taught in in that lane at uh, you know colleges. How has that world changed from your perspective? Obviously, there's been huge changes during your career, but what are some of the biggest things that maybe strike you as, as noteworthy in terms of how the media has changed and how PR has changed over the years? Well, I would say one thing hasn't changed, and that is content is king. And I think that is important for us to tell our clients when they have a story and content that is worthy of telling. It's very easy to sit in the boardroom and think that the Washington Post or the Fort Wayne paper, uh, Indianapolis Star is going to run your story. And it's very difficult to get from the point in the boardroom to getting it done. Mm -hmm. uh, newsrooms and journalism are, are really um, misunderstood. Uh, they're in one of those areas where, you know, when I grew up, everybody subscribed to the local newspaper. Everybody got the paper. Everybody watched the six o'clock and 11 o'clock news before they went to bed, maybe catching Johnny Carson before they turned in. Um, that's not the case anymore. Um, as you know, journal, you know, because they haven't found new, uh, paywalls or pay opportunities uh, for the lack of subscribers, newsrooms have cut back. So you have a very skeleton staff running uh, media outlets now. Um, I do think we're seeing a, a really dynamic change in citizen journalism and also um, the, the ways in which journalists have to operate and that that factor into into our favor like you know if you were a newspaper reporter and you wrote in newspapers 30 years ago that's all you did you wrote for newspapers and you did your story and you saw your byline and you had to recreate it all over again the next day and you were anxious to know who had stories and you wanted to be the first to be there. But now a reporter has to write their story. They have to post it on social media. They have to be willing to talk on radio or TV about their story. They have to become a multi-dimensional journalist. And th that's exciting. So if you have relationships with folks who are, you know, have that capability and have that access and ability to tell their story in all the mediums. Um, they have blog posts. They, they have quite a following. I mean, I, I know one young person that I watched grow up through Huffington Post. She has 25,000 followers on her Twitter account. If she tweets something out, a lot of people see it uh, in that world. So um, they, journalists now are can be key influencers to our clients. Um, and they're just, with technology, there are just so many ways your story can be told. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, in the newspaper or on the radio, on television. 
It's the internet, it's social media and all the platforms, it's podcasts, it's books, columns, op-eds. That's what makes it so fun. Sure. So, so Mike, talk a little bit, um, if you wouldn't mind, about how your work is, is complementary to, integrates with the rest of Asher. Because I know there's times when you work somewhat independently, but there's times you're working with our team. What does that typically look like? Well, um, you know, again, when, when we have a campaign that's starting up, it's a good opportunity to launch that campaign with a news release or to have the CEO of a company or the president of an association, the leader of the organization issue, uh, you know, an op-ed piece um, to kind of kick off things in conjunction with, um, um, you know, an advertising or marketing campaign, whether it's an advocacy campaign or you're trying to sell more product or you're trying to get people to, to um, come into your store or, you know, um, I think creative events are another way to kick off a campaign. Um, there are also times where um, at milestones of, a, of accounts that we work on, where we me are measuring for results and um, uh, it's a good time to take a step back and recalculate your digital campaign, your your uh, media buys, your earned media efforts, you know, your grassroots activities. But it's also a good time to, you know, tell the public what you're doing as well and and tell them what worked and what didn't work and be candid about it. Um, I think authenticity and um, honesty and, you know, it just helps drive uh, a company's brand. Sure, sure. So, so Mike, what are some of, the, some of the things you're working on right now, projects, initiatives, whatever you want to call them, that you think are most noteworthy, most interesting, maybe keeping you up at night a little bit? What are some of the things that are on your mind right now? Well, one of the most exciting things we're doing right now is uh, a year ago, the CEO of Mr. B Potato Chips uh, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, came to Asher and said, I really want you to design a new chip bag for us. And we said, sure, we'd be delighted. Um, and they said, she said, um, I really want to support veterans and military personnel. I need designs that will motivate people to buy this bag of chips and I will give the proceeds of each sale of those bags to a designated veterans organization. And so we have had so much fun with this because we did six designs for Mr. B and I knew the one that I really loved and it's the one they picked. Um, and we went with, and then we unveiled it last Veterans Day. We had no chips in the bags. We just had a design. Sure. Because what I learned was you send the design of the chip bag to a company that has to print it okay. on, the, on the bags themselves for manufacturing. That process takes two months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, 
we'll design this, we'll have chips in a week. No, <laughs> we didn't. Uh, so we we released the, the, the bag design and it just hit a groove and it got covered globally uh, in all throughout the state of West Virginia in all the markets where people buy them online, uh, by the trade publications that they do. Then in um, February of this year, we had chips in the bags and we unveiled that. Uh, the, and, and that was, you know, promotions where we could use Asher's advertising, digital campaigns. Um, also, our graphic arts department designed the chip bag. We did the earned media. Um, and then driving sales of these bags. Then the key was, which group will we partner with? And so we had a say in looking at the veterans organizations out there and the CEO ultimately picked uh, the USO of Metropolitan Washington, Baltimore to be a partner. And just today, Anthony, we released um, the news that she has donated now a total of $100,000 to the USO of Metro Washington, Baltimore, um, with the sale of these chips and out of her own hard work and goodness of the company to help support military personnel, their families, and veterans here during the week leading up to Veterans Day. Oh, that's great. And that release is getting a lot of attention right now. So that is another example of the strategic partnerships that we create um, through our work with our clients. Oh, great. Any other projects that are top of mind with you that you're working on right now? Yes, uh, we have another one where um, a U.S. Senate aide that I used to work with um, left the Senate, went out to Los Angeles, started working with a foundation. She got a master's degree. And she calls me up one day and says, I'm back in West Virginia. She said, I'm going to help start a beekeeping collective that trains people how to be beekeepers. They have to be certified. They have to do it right. They're in Appalachia where there's, um, number one, very few jobs. Uh, there's a need as the coal industry transitions, as veterans return home to rough economies, Beekeeping can be part of the answer. And so this beekeeping collective has now grown to 850 hives all over Virginia and uh, West Virginia. And they've received money from the federal government through the Appalachian Regional Commission um, and a few foundations um, in the region. And what they're trying to do is um, they're buying the honey from the folks who are trained beekeepers, who have the hives at their homes or on property that the Appalachian Beekeeping Collective has provided them, and they're being compensated. Then the Appalachian Headwaters is selling the honey, and all the proceeds are driven back into the business. It all protects pollinators, beekeeping, um, it helps the economy, it's good for the environment, uh, it, 
encourages more planting of native plants that the pollinators will want to feast upon. Um, so they have just launched a new website, abchoney.org, that we're promoting right now. And they've actually partnered with an agency of the federal government, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to develop a pollinator research recovery and education center at their site. And it's just very exciting to work on that project and see this go from an idea to reality with the help of, you know, local, state, federal government officials, funding opportunities by the private sector, but also by the government. Uh, it's a, an excellent example of, of collaboration. And there, there's a third one I'd like to talk a little bit about. Sure. And it's very appropriate given uh, the situation involving COVID-19. Um, as you know, when all of this hit at the first of this year, um, this country has a lot of deficiencies, as, as mighty as the United States is, I think this has exposed a lot of the country's weaknesses. Sure. And one of them is in our, we've given away just too, many, too much of our domestic manufacturing. So um, I, I had another company within our parent company um, contact me because of my work with government and members of Congress. And they, this client makes PPE gloves in Alabama. And they, um, they, they supply gloves uh, for frontline healthcare workers um, all over the world but there is a quite a shortage. We only make 1% of the PPE gloves that we need in this country. We are dependent upon principally Asian markets, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, for our supplies, and they've got us over a barrel on the prices. Sure, sure. And look at all the other industries where industrial workers need gloves. They're now competing with our frontline healthcare workers and caregivers. So um, we're, uh, we've been working in the media. We've had uh, stories about this on NBC News, uh, CNN. We've had interface with the Pentagon, HHS, the FDA, and other federal agencies about how this domestic producer of PPE gloves can help make a difference in that shortage. Um, and that's been very enlightening to work on, but, but um, an absolute you know, wonderful project. Uh, we did have a member of Congress tour the facility a couple weeks ago, and, and that was really good. And I think the congressional staff saw this project from new eyes after they saw the manufacturing, the expansion potential at this plant, and then the need to get the government to help uh, provide contracts and help to domestic producers of PPE products. Yeah, well, it's, you know, that's really ultimately what we do at the end of the day. It's getting the right type of attention for products and services that are worthy of getting that attention. So from potato chips to beekeeping to PPE, it sounds like you do a little bit of everything. Well, well, Mike, what I what we like to do in 
in closing, we're almost uh, heading, we're heading towards the home stretch here. In closing, there's three questions that I ask that are similar to the first three, but we're looking sort of for the speed round. So quick answers to these. Um, if you were talking to someone, and you do because you teach college classes, you have a lot of involvement with young people, people just getting started in their career, people who are changing careers. If you could give someone just one piece of advice about having a successful career, finding a career path, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I think the biggest thing, Anthony, and I think you you are seeing this, your career is a long-term proposition, and it's really a marathon and not a sprint. So a lot of times I, I when I mentor young professionals that have been out of school for a little while and and they're, they've been involved in, in government relations or grassroots or um, public relations, marketing, they, they are anxious to climb up that ladder so fast. And I think you should take your time and pace yourself. And that would probably be the, the, the best advice I could give somebody is, you know, you have many uh, iterations and I've remade myself probably at least three times and never stopped learning over 40 years of being in the workforce. And um, I'm still probably at a higher level of learning curve now in my career than I ever was. But patience is a virtue and, and it's a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah, and that dedication to continuing to learn is something we all need. Um, you know, I, I always tell my students that the, the diploma or the degree is the start line, not the finish line for your education. So good, good advice for sure. So if you, and I'm sure you do this all the time, if you were asked about Asher Agency and what Asher Agency does or, or the work you do at Asher and you had to succinctly tell people what that is, what would you say? Asher Agency puts people first. Their clients the employees, and the audiences we seek to motivate on our campaigns. Um, I cannot emphasize how important it is, and I've just been at, at other agencies, enough other agencies in my career, and then, of course, being involved in Pub Public Relations Society of America um, and other organizations. Um, they put profits first. They put... You know, the emphasis is on all the wrong things, you know. Uh, they're trying to rebrand themselves every two years. And it's really uh, the people that you have that work on your team, uh, the clients that we choose to work with and the projects that we represent. Um, you know, and working in Washington is challenging because, um, you know, as a teacher, ethics is a very important part of our courses. Um, because it's very easy to be tempted to take the easy or fast road and to let the ethics go by the wayside. Sure. And, and, and I just can't tell you, people are the most important part of what we do, and I feel like that Asher represents that motto. Great. So the last question, um, you know, these are tough times and changing times, as you well know, being on the street in D.C., so if a colleague, a friend, you know, asked you for some words of advice, some, some words that might help them get through the day uh, relative to the challenges people are facing right now, what advice might you have? Well, when um, COVID 
first hit and we were all confined to work at home, I think once the shock wore off after a week or so, um, we started to reach out to each other and we started to network more and we started to uh, be, build tighter relationships and networking opportunities as professionals. And that was really important. Now, that could have gone a number of different ways. People could have holed up and become hermits yeah. <laughs> uh, working out of their home. Um, and, and I know some people have made decisions, tough decisions, that they need to uh, quit working and, and focus on something else, their families or um, their children, uh, their health. And that's, I respect that. Uh, but in the professional world, um, I have been amazed and positively amazed at how collaborative people have been. Um, I'm now working on the third ebook on uh, professional collaboration. The first one we did was around how we should, we in the government relations, advocacy, and communications world can navigate doing our jobs in a virtual environment. And so that uh, book was published and it's on Amazon. And then we did one um, on um, helping young people, young professionals and students coming out of college um, because it's really important. Um, they're having the most difficult time in the job market now with the inability to go meet people in person and even on board and for a new job in person. And now the third ebook we're working on is the business of advocacy. And this is really important about the financials, about quality service, ethics, in the way you conduct your work. And um, I'm real excited about that one that'll come out in right around uh, mid-December. So, so Mike, who are you collaborating with, if anyone, on these books? Is this all you or are you working with someone on them? Well, we're working, the Advocacy Association is a nonprofit group here in Washington that I belong to, and anybody can Google the Advocacy Association and join. There's no membership. The events and webinars and professional development seminars don't cost a dime. All you have to do is sign up and participate and get involved. So we put out a call for um, articles some that have already been written, some that will be written in a collaborative form individually or collectively with groups. Um, and it represents uh, private sector, government leaders, uh, government officials, and um, association executives, professors um, across the board. I think the last ebook we did had um, 11 authors wrote 17 articles. Okay. And, and then as we edited them, we looked for those articles that covered all the different topics and were not all about the same thing. Sure, sure. All right, so some collaboration and working on stuff about the art of collaboration. That's great. <laughs> That's right. Well, Mike, um, thanks for your time. We've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything important to you that we missed about your career path, about Asher, about projects, anything anything you want to plug or talk about that we missed? Well, I really um, enjoy what I do at work, and, and I think the work-life balance is an important thing to talk about, too. Sure. I have a wife, uh, two grown daughters, 
and um, I, I really enjoy landscaping and gardening and uh, reading books um, uh, and um, um, also uh, exercising and walking. My wife and I are avid walkers, try to hit 10,000 steps a day. And so I, I think, you know, this is a good time to reflect on how blessed we all are um, and, and to take advantage of every moment. Whoever saw this pandemic coming, uh, nobody. Um, so it's really changed the way we look at everything in our lives from not just work, but also play and our, our loved ones and our colleagues in the, in the agency and our clients. Um, I think it's, um, you know, I cannot wait till the vaccine uh, is approved. It was good news today from Pfizer on their trials, but um, I will be delighted to get back to normal, what we used to think is normal, but I don't think we will ever get back to uh, normal as we knew it prior to March of this year. Sure. Uh, so things have changed quite a bit, uh, but it's made us reflect, and I think that's important to do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Sort of that reset that we all we all needed. And, you know, if, if you come out of this and you've got your health and, and people close to you have their health and you, you still have an income, you're doing better than a lot of others and should be grateful for that and take the time to, to rethink things, as you said, as a result. Well, Mike, I am grateful for the opportunity to work for you and for you spending some time with us this afternoon. So thank you very much. Congrats again on the award and uh, hope to see you in the real world sometime soon. I can't wait, Anthony. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode, and we'll catch you next time on the Asher Marketing Podcast. Thanks.